Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. It is show number 47 of the MMA podcast that brings you fighting talk with a distinctly British flavour. Simon Head and Chamatkar Sandu back with you again to bring you what should be a pretty packed show. And as you can probably hear in the background, Mr. Sandu is uh, is out and about. He's actually uh, he's at the airport right now, Sandu. Is that right? I am, Simon. Um, this is going to... Hopefully we can make it through the show without any technical hiccups, but I'm on the Wi-Fi. Um, you may hear the tannoy in the background with, you know, flight announcements being made and all sorts. But yeah, I'm, I'm in Glasgow Airport. I've got a few hours to kill until I fly back to London. I'm actually sitting alongside our very own uh, MMA junkie colleague, Per Halstrom, who is actually in the middle of editing some pictures uh, post-fight from UFC Fight Night Glasgow. And uh, yeah, it's been a whirlwind week, Simon. Uh, we've got like you said, a lot to talk about. It's going to be a packed show this week. And uh, yeah, let's get to it. Just before we start, I need to peel back the curtain for the listeners that hooking up this thing is not always the most straightforward of jobs. And when when one of us is out and about trying to deal with Wi-Fi and all the rest of it, it gets a bit tricky. And I had a few problems getting hold of Sandu. One minute I was talking to him and then the next minute he went strangely quiet. Why did you go strangely quiet, Mr. Sandu? Well, listen, Simon, when you have our very own British UFC octagon girl, Carly Baker, walk by and stop off and say hi to me and Per, you have to give her time of day. Um, look, at the, you know what? I, I tell you what, uh, I'm not being biased here just because she's uh, British and she's uh, our fellow countrywoman. But I have to say, of all the octagon girls that I've met, uh, and I've met a few uh, in my time covering this sport, none are more sweeter, none are more nicer uh, than Carly Baker. She literally is the quintessential girl next door. Uh, she always makes time for us. i uh, always going to make sure she pops by and says hi. And, you know, we had a lot of catch up just now, talked about the fights last night, talked about how amazing the crowd was. And actually, she made a pretty good suggestion. You know, you know we got, I asked her what her next event was going to be, and she said it'll be Rotterdam, which is in September. Uh, and then she said, look, you know, why can't, for Mayweather McGregor, why can't they perhaps get half the UFC Octagon girls and then half uh, the Mayweather promotion or Showtime uh, ringside girls together as a sort of mix. Just again, just another you know caveat to this whole you know spectacle and bringing the two worlds together, which I thought was a pretty pretty good idea. Um, but then she had to run off to to catch her flight, and I said, look, what I'll try and do is get some sort of petition um, <laughs> going in your favour to see if we can try and make that happen. So let's see. Fantastic! I got blown out. In favour of a chat with uh, Oxygen Girl Carly Baker. I can't really complain about that, in fairness. I, I was like, what happened? And then he told me, I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Back to the show in hand. And uh, let's try and do this chronologically. The past week has been nuts. Uh, yep. if you, unless you've been living under a rock for the past week, it can't have escaped you that the Mayweather-McGregor World Tour has dominated the news cycle, both inside the MMA bubble and outside. And uh, it's been it's been at times controversial. It's it's uh, and it's been it's been very loud. It's been very brash, and the, and it all finished in London on Friday. Now you were up in Glasgow uh, doing media day fight week on Thursday, but uh, you managed to jet down to to London to do media day with our buddy Abby Saban. Um, and I've seen the footage. I've watched the interviews. I've watched all the behind the scenes. It looked like an absolute zoo. Just how crazy was it, mate? It was 
a zoo is a good way to describe it, Simon. Um, you know, we, we were kind of like from a, from a distance here on this side of the pond. We were following this international three-country, four-city tour from a distance, you know, when it was in L.A., then Toronto, and then New York, and seeing our colleagues stateside deal with the coverage, uh, it looked just absolutely manic and stressful. Um, we could, because at the end of the day, you've got the UFC PR team, then you've got the WMEIMG PR team, then you've got staff from Mayweather Promotions and staff from Showtime, all trying to collaborate and communicate with MMA media, boxing media, mainstream media, uh, print, digital, social, um, radio. There's just so many di different outlets that want to get a, a piece of the pie, so to speak. They all wanted um, you know, to create content. They all wanted access. Um, so it, it was absolutely, from my, my perspective, first of all, just an absolute career highlight um, to be able to cover um, an event like that was just absolutely phenomenal from a personal point of view. Uh, and I'm just glad um, that things went so well for both me and Abby and our bosses over stateside, you know, John Morgan, Dan Stubb and all the rest of the crew. They were all just so happy with the coverage that we got from London. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. So the way they had it split up was you had, and I don't know if anyone's listening that, you know, followed some of the, the pictures that I tweeted and on Instagram and on Twitter. And uh, I'm sure you can tell from the actual video content as well. They had an entire section just for TV and digital and that's where we were set up then they had a separate room just for print media which is the kind of the newspapers and tabloids and what have you so in our in our section simon you had literally itv sport and then it was mma junkie it was freaking awesome like thankfully we got taken care of really really well by the pr staff uh, and then after us you had just every other media outlet scrumming together so somehow some way we got uh, to rub shoulder, shoulders with, uh, you know, the TV live broadcast feed um, crew from, from ITV Sport and then a little bit later on that evening with Sky Sports News. And it was brutal because they got uh, dibs on the, the first interviews as everybody kind of walked by. And then right after them, I got my chance to have a one-on-one -on -one interview with everybody. And then after that, pretty much uh, the subjects were kind of whisked away forward to just go into a scrum format. So to get one-on-one -on -one interviews with the likes of Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather, Dana White, Stephen Espinosa, Leonard Ellerby. And then later on that evening, after everything had wrapped up, I got some time with Conor McGregor's manager, Audia Tarr, and also Conor McGregor's nutritionist, George, George Lockhart. Simon, as you know, in the field that we work in, trying to get one-on-one -on -one interviews with some of these characters, they don't grow on trees. Some, some guys will go through an entire career covering this sport and never get an opportunity to have those one-on-one -on -one interviews so for me to get <laughs> Mayweather, McGregor and Dana White and Espinosa and Ellaby all in the space of a few hours I was buzzing I was on cloud nine I hope everyone that watched the the interviews that I conducted uh, and the, the video content that was produced and edited by Abby I hope you enjoyed it I hope you uh, appreciated it um, yeah I mean you know I could just go on and on um, and talk about how amazing it was. Um, I, again, again, I, I have to say, I think we were really privileged and lucky that we got the access that we did. Because um, very easily, you know, in these situations, Simon, you could be, and I, and I felt sorry for some guys um, that were trying to get access and get a, a nice clean shot, but there were just so many people huddled around 
Um, some people were raising their cameras because their tripods couldn't get through. You've got bodies in the way. Um, so I, I think, thankfully, on our part, we were lucky enough and privileged enough to get the access that we did um, to you know, get the interviews that I was able to conduct. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazing, Simon. To be honest with you, I think I'm still, I'm still buzzing off that um, moment and it's uh, you know, going to be a, a day and a, a, an event and an experience uh, that I'm going to cherish with me forever and not going to forget too easily. Yeah, getting all those A-list interviews uh, in a career or in the space of like a couple of years is one thing. Having to do them back to back to back is, uh, I can imagine the adrenaline rush was pretty high. So, yeah. you know, I mean, but it's one of those, once, once you're in there, you just, you, you know, it, it's basically the same as you would do normally. It's just yeah. the person you're standing and pointing the mic at is somewhat more of a big hitter than some of the guys you normally talk to. So, you know, the job's the same, but the stakes are higher. And it's, uh, but it all, it all came across really well, mate. I'll tell you something, and I don't, know, I don't know whether you've had much time to sit down and sort of reflect on it all, but my, my uh, unsung hero of that whole press tour was Leonard Ellaby. I, I just, that man is completely unflappable. Mm-hmm. throughout the entire he, he looks like a million bucks in fact he looks like 10 million bucks always immaculately turned out and he had that grin on his face for the entire press to, it didn't matter what was going on you know the expletives were being hurled at each other it looked like you know anything could have happened at that you know at, at various points you know they were nose to nose yet nothing actually happened Ellaby just stood there almost as if he'd gone into the future and seen that it was all going to be okay and he just sat back, smiling contently, as if to say, "All this is doing is generating dollars. This is absolutely fantastic." And I thought that, I thought that he was a bit of an unsung, unsung star of the trip. But let me turn a question on you, Sandu, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in with my take afterwards. Uh, I'll, I'll turn a question on you that you used on a lot of the subjects that you spoke to uh, during that, during that incredible uh, press event in London. How did you score it? We had four stops. We had Los Angeles, then Toronto, then Brooklyn, then London. Run me through your scorecard um, in terms of who came out best in the verbal exchanges as we went through the course of that incredible press tour. Yeah, sure. And I, and I think this is, this is a fun thing to talk about and a fun thing to discuss. I, mean, I know uh, there's a few you know, colleagues of, of ours out there in the MMA bubble kind of frown upon doing something like this but i think it's fun i think it's a it's it's, it's a part of the process it's an it's another little caveat to this whole journey as we head towards august 26th so i think there's two ways of looking at it first of all in terms of just pure entertainment i think toronto without a shadow of a doubt was number one i think then number two for me was london uh number three was la then you had about 50 feet of dog poo and then you had Brooklyn, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Now, uh, and now in terms of how I kind of broke everything down in terms of who won each round, so to speak, um, I gave Mayweather LA very narrowly. And I think a major part of that was because McGregor was on a crutch, so to speak. You know, um, he, he didn't know what the, the format was going to be. He hadn't prepared anything. Um, so he, he was, you know... Caught by a blindside on that one. Then Toronto, like, you could score that a 10-8 or a 10-7 or even a 10-6 to McGregor. Uh, that was arguably, in my opinion, not only 
the best. I don't want to call it a press conference. I mean, they kept calling it a press conference, but it wasn't. It was a show. But whatever you want to call this whole situation in terms of an event, it was probably the best event in combat sports regarding some sort of press exposure, the best I've ever seen in terms of crowd participation, in terms of what Mayweather and McGregor brought to the table, in terms of some of the zingers uh, that came out. It was just... That was probably worth $100 by itself, let alone having to pay that for the actual fight come August 26th. Then you went to Brooklyn. Um, to be honest, I, I, it was such a, a really a shit show um, of an event. I don't even know how I would score it. I mean, I think if you're looking at um, what went viral, you know, what, what went through the roof in terms of social media. You had Conor McGregor there in a polar bear jacket. Um, and even when, you know, Floyd through all these kind of dollar bills in the air um the iconic image is of conor mcgregor in this polar bear jacket um uh with his top half of his body exposed with these um rick flair style um trousers with some stunning shades on and you just got all these dollar bills just floating in the air around him so you know it, it was it was a bit it was a bit of a shit show but in terms of who went more viral from that particular event, I'd give that to McGregor. And then I think in London, once again, crowd participation was back on form, just like it was in Toronto. Uh, definitely the loudest uh, crowd of the bunch. You had the British, and of course you had plenty of the Irish in attendance too. And um, and you just knew that they were going to be singing all night long. And uh, and, and I'd give that um, to McGregor as well. I mean, there was a bit of a risque moment there where he kind of walked past Mayweather and kind of rubbed and tapped his dome, which I thought was, you know, oh, God, God, are we about to kind of have a physical altercation here? Because up until that moment, they'd been in each other's faces at every single destination. They'd faced off so many times and they had kind of, you know, verbally just been spewing, you know, all sorts of, you know, language under the sun at each other. Um, but they hadn't physically kind of really kind of, uh, pushed their boundary, so to speak. And as a follically challenged man that I am, Simon, let me just tell you, if somebody uh, went behind me and kind of rubbed or tapped or pushed my skull, that would definitely push my button. So I've got to give credit to Mayweather for, for keeping it cool, calm and collected in that moment. Um, but like I said, I, I'd score that for, uh, for, for McGregor as well. So overall, I think McGregor won. Now, what does that mean? Did he get under Mayweather's skin? I don't think so. I mean, to be honest with you, Mayweather and McGregor are, are both winners here. And I, I think Mayweather, and I, and I asked Mayweather about this as well. He, after all these years, Simon, he's finally got the best dance partner he's ever had. He really has, and yeah. really has. He's got his ultimate, they're a yin and a yang right now. And it's the perfect marriage of two entertainers who are going to bring the most amount of eyeballs on a combat sport situation that we've ever seen. So um, overall, I'd score it to McGregor, but let's be, let's be honest, they're both the big winners out of this one. Absolutely. I mean, the way I saw it, I, I thought that Brooklyn was just so bad and some of the stuff McGregor came out with was just so wrong that I couldn't give him that one. I thought, I thought that, that, that was a car, a car crash of, a, of an event. As you say, you can't call them press conferences. It was like, it was like a cross between a live debate and a rap battle. But without the debating and without the rapping, you know what I mean. It was, it was, it was, yeah. it was. If you wrote this down on paper, you'd say, "Don't do that. That's not going to work." And and in some of the cities, it didn't. But 
In Toronto, it definitely did. Toronto was absolutely superb. McGregor was on absolutely stellar form. I thought he was great. Uh, and we saw the best of him on stage in Toronto and he had the fans going and it was, it, it was, it was great. I liked him in LA because he had to, he had to kind of wing it. And what we heard from McGregor in LA, he was speaking a bit more from, from the heart, talking about being a father and things like that. That's the real Conor McGregor sort of just seeping through a little bit. You've got the bravado, but we just had a little glimpse into the real Conor McGregor on the very first stop because he was caught on the hop. He didn't really know that he had to get up there and say too much. I think he thought he was going to get up there and someone was going to ask him some questions. But, um, yeah, and I, I thought that under the circumstances, he did pretty well. And I thought, obviously, he dominated proceedings in, in London, as you would expect. Um, so I think if you're looking at it from a sort of a verbal jousting point of view, I think McGregor clearly clearly won, won the tour, if you like. And as you say, it is a bit of fun. It, what does it count for? Absolutely nothing at all. Um, will it have any bearing whatsoever on fight night? Only if McGregor knocks out Mayweather inside four rounds, like he said. Because if he does, then we can go back to everything he said on the press tour, where he just kept ramming that point home. And we can say, do you know what? Mystic Max strikes again. If it doesn't happen, then really most of what was said on the press tour was just BS, bluster, bombast, and there just to sell tickets, which which was the point of the whole tour. But, um, you know, it would be remiss of us to not mention the fact that there were bad moments on this tour as well. We had misogynistic comments. We had comments that could be uh, construed as having racial connotations. We also had uh, a homophobic slur thrown in towards the end. None of that is what we want in the sport of, uh, or in any sport for that matter, whether it be boxing, MMA, uh, garden bowls, whatever. We don't want any of that. And both those guys, and particularly Connor, are more than capable of... Uh, of, of, of giving it the verbals and really uh, having having some fun with it without needing to go down that route. So it was disappointing that we saw some of that sort of stuff creeping in. And I think that was probably indicative of the fact that they were both beginning to run out of ideas. I mean, Floyd basically had one, one bit of material that he just repeated uh, over all four events. Connor at least was trying to, trying to change things up and was perhaps trying a little bit too hard in Brooklyn um, when things seemed to sort of get away from him a little bit. And uh, the controversy began to kick in. But that's all done now. We've got a six-week build-up. And then we've got Fight Night itself. You can guarantee we'll be talking about this topic a little bit more from a sporting perspective as we get a little bit closer to to Fight Night at the T-Mobile Arena on August the 26th. But let's get on to some MMA, shall we? We had an event that took place in Glasgow just last night, we're recording this on Monday, July 17th. Last night, Sunday the 16th, at the SSE Hydro, over 10,500 screaming Scottish fans packed the arena for UFC Fight Night 113. Uh, Ponzinibbio versus Nelson, or Nelson versus Ponzinibbio, as I think it was originally billed. This card got a lot of stick when it was being put together. Where are the big names? Are the UFC shortchanging the Scottish fans? blah de blah blah The usual stuff we see when they put on uh, a fight night card on these shores. But my goodness me, did they deliver, Sandu. What a night. Now, you were there as part yep. of the, uh, the media in the event. So I'd be interested to get your take as opposed to mine. I had my feet up with a cold beer watching this one. It's been a long time since I've sat and watched a, 
a British-based UFC show uh, and not actually being in the arena. So it was a different experience for me. Um, but I have to say, as an event, I thought it was outstanding. We had shocks. We had great knockouts. We had some real wow moments. And, of course, we had, the, we had a, uh, a retirement of a bit of a legend around these parts in Neil Two Tap series. So let's talk about that main event first off, Sandy. Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Gunnar Nelson. I confidently predicted that Ponzinibbio was tailor-made for Gunnar Nelson, that he would come walking forward, throwing strikes, and he would walk straight into a bear trap and Nelson would take him down and choke him. Well, that didn't happen, did it? <laughs> Ponzinibbio starts Nelson, huge straight left, um, and uh, I think everybody except for Ponzinibbio's corner was in complete and utter shock. What was the reaction where you were standing? That's the, the perfect way to describe it, Simon. Everybody was shocked. Uh, I think if you spoke to anybody in the media, everyone was picking Gunnar Nelson uh, to win this fight. Uh, everyone thought that he'd win it comfortably. And to see him knocked out within the first 90 seconds of the first round was just an absolute shocker. Um, Got to give credit to Gunnar Nelson. You know, he, he turned up to the post-fight press conference and, and faced the music, spoke to the media. And he mentioned that at, at one point, in the fight, just prior to the knockout, he was kind of eye-poked. And at the time, he felt as though he should have, you know, spoken to the referee. Now, technically, it's up to the referee to jump in and actually stop the fight if he's seen an eye-poke. But you know how it is. If a fighter, um, you know, makes a beeline or, or makes a, a, some sort of gesture to the referee to indicate that they've been poked in the eye, Nine times out of ten, the referee does jump in and stop it just to kind of get it checked out. Now, in that split-second moment, he didn't do that, and he owned up to the, to the fact that he didn't do that. He tried to kind of battle through it. He mentioned that he was seeing two Santiago Ponzinibbios at, in that moment, and while he had a bit of blurred vision, Santiago just kind of starched him, like you said, Simon, knocked him out. Um, it was a brutal knockout. He absolutely slept him. And, uh, you know... <laughs> And all of a sudden, Simon, you've now got yet another welterweight uh, in Santiago Ponzinibbio, the Argentinian. You know, how many fighters do we have from Argentina um, in the UFC that are making waves? He's just got a win in a main event against a marquee fighter in Gunnar Nelson. So it'll be interesting to see how the UFC books him moving forward. Yeah, and there has been discussions about potentially the UFC doing a show in Argentina at some point in the future. I think Joe Carr might have mentioned it in, uh, in an interview with our, our colleague John Morgan that Argentina might be somewhere that they're looking to expand to. And as you say, they've not got that many uh, Argentinian fighters. Off the top of my head, I think it may be one, maybe two. So, um, you know, he, he really will be the sort of the, uh, the man flying the flag uh, for Argentina in the UFC. And if they do hold a show down there, then uh, Ponzinibbio is obviously the guy to stick on the main event, assuming it's a fight night show, of course. Uh, someone else who's making some waves is Cynthia Calvillo. Um, she took on local favourite Joanne Calderwood in a strawweight contest. Jojo didn't make weight. She weighed in uh, two pounds over the 116 limit, coming in at 118. Um, and so she obviously lost 20% of her purse to Calvillo, which wasn't a great start to the fight fight weekend for her. And then the fight went to a decision and uh, it went to Calvillo, 30-27, 30-27, 29-28. Now, I scored it 29-28 to Calvillo, but I did think that it was an incredibly close fight. I thought Calvillo 
to me, took, took round one and round three. Round two was a close one. I wasn't sure how that one would go. Um, I, I think I've probably edged it to Calderwood. But I can see why some judges scored it 30-27 because that middle round was close. How did you see it and how impressed were you with Cynthia Calvillo? Obviously, you would have chatted to her during fight week as well. Yeah, Simon, you know, this was a weird one because I saw scores all over the place um, from obviously people um, within our you know, MMA media circle uh, that we both respect. And it was just one of those weird fights where every single round was fairly close. Uh, and for me, I definitely gave Cynthia rounds one and round three just from the pure fact that both rounds ended um, with um, a rear naked choke and an armbar attempt that had she had about 30 seconds more, it would have been game over. And I think a lot of fans and a lot of people out there perhaps still look too much at the, the striking um, element of the game and don't take into consideration or factor in the grappling um, and uh, the jiu-jitsu uh, as a way of kind of scoring points or kind of like, you know, over, overly, uh, you know, overall evaluating how you judge a particular round. But I gave Cynthia all three rounds, actually. Um, okay. I, gave, I gave her rounds one and three. Um, that you're right, that middle round was a, 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 probably the closest round of the bunch, uh, but I still scored it for Cynthia. I just thought her head movement, uh, her footwork was just phenomenal. At, at times, it was almost mimicking Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw uh, and, you know, uh, Cody Garbrandt, which is obviously um, evident from the fact that she is part of Team Alpha Male, so that's no surprise there. But I was actually, when we got back to the hotel room afterwards, I was actually speaking to Elstrom, uh, MMA junkie Per, and he told me of all the fights last night, he had such a hard time trying to get a decent shot of Cynthia because her movement was so quick uh, and rapid. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think Joanne, she was, she was attempting a lot of strikes, but for, for me, from my vantage point, she just wasn't landing as clean as perhaps what may have looked on TV considering the output she was giving. Whereas I, th I think Cynthia was a little bit more economical. Um, she busted up Calderwood's nose. Calderwood's nose was a, a bloody mess afterwards. Um, but to be honest with you, look, even if you gave Joanne that second round, um, Cynthia definitely locked in that first and third round for, for at least a 29-28. And now what you've got, Simon, you've got Cynthia who's on a three-fight win streak in the UFC in the strawweight division. Um, Dana White is a massive fan of hers. She's the only fighter in the UFC that's got three wins this year. Um, she's now beelining for the upper echelon of that top 10. And um, I think perhaps one more win, and you could be looking at the next challenger for Joanna Janjajic's title. She's already kind of made a, a bit of an effort, I've seen today, this morning, in regards to trying to get a fight with Michelle Waterson. That's an interesting one. Um, I actually think it would be uh, quite poetic if she tries to you know, speak to the UFC and actually get on the Polish card at the end of this year. If she wants to you know, make some noise and try and get a fight with Joanna Janjajic, beating a top-ranked opponent in Joanna Janjajic's backyard of Poland, that should get the job done. Yeah, I think you know the sky is the limit for her. Clearly, Dana White is uh, is very taken by her. You know some of the comments that he's made uh, to the press already about about her potential uh, in that UFC 115 pound division. You know she's beaten Amanda Cooper, Pearl Gonzalez, and Joanne Calderwood so far in her UFC career. 
Um, and uh, she's looked impressive in all three all three fights. Obviously, the first two uh, were submission finishes, but uh, the Joanne Calderwood fight, she she needed to go to the scorecards. The point on the scoring, Sandu, and this is the thing that when and, and and I think you make a good point about people being too focused on the striking, because that tends to be where the fights sort of start off, and you know it can take a while before grappling becomes a factor in in the fight. And if I think Calderwood was shading the grappling in the first round in particular, I thought I thought she was doing a little bit better than uh, than Cynthia, but she was you know it was just shading it. And then once Cynthia got to the mat, Cynthia nearly finished the fight. So that element of the fight should be scored and weighted much much more heavily than Joanne just edging the striking. So I yep. think and and that's why that round was obviously a Cynthia Calvillo round. Likewise, round three. Um, so I, I do. I, I don't think it was that controversial a decision, to be honest. I know, I know. Jojo wasn't happy about it afterwards, and obviously, there's an amount of disappointment immediately after the, after the decision that needs to subside and all of that, and people are asking a question straight away. But she wasn't happy. Um, but I thought, I thought that was a clear, a clear win for Cynthia. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they give her. Looking at looking at the list, Waterson would be. Would certainly be a, a fan-friendly fight. One that you could imagine them show um, headlining like a a Fox show with that, you mm. know, or, or or maybe a Fight Night show in in the states, or you know, as like a co-main even on on a pay-per-view. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think I think that's an interesting one. Tisha Torres is up there, um, but you know, I, I think I think there are options for Cynthia, but I do think she needs a little bit more seasoning. I think I think realistically she needs to win another couple. Because I think there was there were certain elements of that, that that fight that led me to think that she still has a little bit to learn in the stand up department, and uh, I think uh, she was allowing JoJo to to sort of dictate the pace a little bit early on, uh, and against uh, someone who was perhaps a little bit more seasoned in terms of defending takedowns, that that may have come back to bite her towards the end of the fight. But um, yeah, she's got a huge upside, and I'm really excited to see what happens next for Cynthia Calvillo. One of the moments of the night for me, and also one of the more controversial uh, moments of the night, came in the fight that preceded that. The lightweight fight between Paul Felder and Stevie Ray. I think a lot of us, myself included, had this one pegged as a potential fight of the night contender. It didn't really go for, far, uh, for long enough for it to be considered a fight of the night contender, really. Felder knocking out Stevie Ray with elbows uh, at the 357 mark of the opening round. I don't know what your vantage point was like for this fight, Sandu, or whether you've had the chance to watch it on a screen. Stevie Ray got knocked out twice in that fight, um, and the fight should have been stopped a good 10, 15 seconds before it did. Because when Felder dropped Stevie Ray with, uh, with a big knee the first time, Ray was out. He was absolutely out cold, and Felder's strikes on the mat actually woke Stevie back up again. Uh, and I don't know, I think Grant Waterman, uh, Grant Waterman was the ref, it's possible that he didn't have the view that, that the uh, the cameraman had at that exact moment. He obviously he might not have had that exact angle, but uh, yeah, Stevie was out. Um, and he, you know, whenever you see someone get knocked out like that, the last thing you want is to see them taking additional shots. Um, so it was it was a, it was a, it was a difficult one to watch at times. But you know, all all credit to Paul Felder who told his story after the fight about his uh, he, he lost his father to pancreatic cancer at the start of his fight fight camp. Uh, he was wearing a, a chain after the fight, which has a little 
a little vial on it which had uh, had some of his father's ashes in it. And uh, we've both met and had a, had the pleasure of uh, chatting to Paul Felder over a beer in in Belfast. And uh, a nicer bloke you couldn't wish to meet. Absolute, absolutely lovely guy. Um, and uh, he picked up a big, big win on uh, on Sunday night. Yeah, he did. And it's interesting you say um, that Ray was out because, you know, you have a, a much better view, Simon, as we know, when you're watching from the comfort of your own home and you've got, um, you know, all these amazing close-up shots from the UFC production and broadcast. From my vantage point, sitting cage side, constantly looking from a laptop to, to the cage, from the laptop to the cage, you know, don't get me wrong, we both know it's great to be cage side, but there are times where you miss things, you know, and that's why I always say, you know, even for judges, you know, it is pretty hard to, to, to score a fight sometimes, you know, so, you know, we give them stick now and then, but, you know, I can sympathize with them as well because it's a tough, tough job. Uh, I actually didn't catch that first knockout, to be honest with you. Um, I, I just thought maybe he was rocked a little bit, but I didn't know if he was completely out and uh, a follow-up shot from Belder actually woke him back up again. Uh, but regardless, you know, I think the major storyline, Simon, coming into this for Stevie Ray was the fact that he was rolling the dice with his career. It was the last fight on his contract. Um, had he won, he would have been five and one in, um, sorry, six and one in the UFC, and um, that would have given him plenty, plenty of you know bargaining power when it came to the negotiation table to figure out a new contract. Um, he mentioned and talked to us about his fight week that ideally he'd like to re-sign with the UFC, um, but. Having said that, if there's a, a bigger, better, uh, and more lucrative offer out there, uh, that that would be something that he'd have to, you know, take into consideration. Especially when you, you know, know that these fighters have a very short career and um, they want to try and make as much money as possible. So he now ends his UFC run on, on a, uh, five and two on a loss. Um, so we'll see what the UFC give him uh, in terms of an offer. One question, without a doubt, is that. Stevie Ray is a massive, massive draw in, in Scotland specifically. And if, if the UFC want to continue to come back to Glasgow, they need the likes of a Stevie Ray and a Joanne Calderwood and, 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 you know, uh, and a Paul Craig and now Danny Henry as well. But Calderwood and, and, and Stevie Ray, those are the two that are, are the real superstars of, of Scotch, Scottish MMA, so to speak. Um, you know, I'm sure you, can, you, know, you would have heard on the broadcast, I mean, the crowd were just absolutely fantastic super super electric um at times rivaling at times beating um the, the the irish fans in dublin you know when stevie and joanne walked out and it's interesting because when paul felder spoke to us in the post-fight press conference he even he said you know that the scottish fans put the brazilians to shame and we know that the brazilians can be fairly loud as well um but but for paul Pel for, for paul felder this is great he's now got a couple of wins, a couple of finishes, a couple of bonuses, plus he's now heading into his first duty as a commentator for Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. So um, things are going really, really well professionally for Paul Felder. Yeah, and uh, as I say, top top bloke as well. And uh, one of those guys who, when you see his name on a fight card, you know you're going to get an exciting fight. He always brings it, always brings an exciting fight, never takes a backward step. And, uh, you know, if you're building your dream fight card and you're putting people into place, I would suggest that you ask around a lot of hardcore fans and you say, do you think we should put Paul Felder on that card somewhere? Most of them would say yes, just because he's that kind of fighter. 
You know, he, he's a he's a fighter's fighter. He's a fan's fighter. And uh, while he did beat uh, a local favourite in Stevie Ray, he still uh, was given an awful amount of uh, respect from the, uh, the Scottish fans uh, on the microphone afterwards, and, and justifiably so. Middleweights were in the cage before those two. Jack Marshman versus Ryan James. This, for me, was a really interesting fight to watch. Interesting clash of styles. Marshman got the nod, 29-28 on all three scorecards. And that was how I scored it, but boy, was it close. I thought Marshman took the first round. I thought James took the third round. And again, it comes down to that middle round, and which, which was very, very close. I'm, I was actually slightly surprised that all three judges saw it the same because that second round was so close, it wouldn't have surprised me at all if one of the judges had gone the other way and we'd ended up with a split decision. But uh, it was one of those fights. It was a frustrating one for Marshman, who uh, had went in there and he said in a post-fight interview that landing the first shot on James is, is something that he had no problem doing. But following up with the big second shot was something that they've worked on a lot in, in, uh, in training camp. But James' ability to just pull his chin just out the way, having taken that initial first shot, um, that frustrated Marshman throughout the fight. And James can take a good shot, as we, as we learn. But uh, that, was, that was a hard-earned win for Jack Marshman, Sandu. This is an interesting one, Simon, because, as you know, we wear many hats when it comes to fight night. And although I had a cage-side seat, I actually spent the majority of the night running backwards and forwards uh, to the back. The majority of the prelims and the early part of the main card, I was actually uh, backstage for the majority of it, um, shooting and interviewing the fighters in the post-fight scrums, and then shuttling backwards and forwards to Abby, um, passing him memory cards so that he could um, get the edits done and then upload them to the MMA Junkie YouTube channel and then get them over um, to our colleagues writing the stories. So while the Marshman-James fight was going on, I was actually involved in an Alistair Overeem media scrum backstage. So I actually didn't watch the fight at all. Um, but I did actually speak to, um, again, Per Halstrom in, the, in our hotel room afterwards. And for him, it was a fight of the night. That was a fight that he enjoyed the most. Um, I actually can't, I honestly can't weigh in here, Simon, because I actually haven't seen the fight. Um, I kind of got back to uh, my cage side seat um, just for, towards the latter part of the third round. Um, but that's not enough for me to evaluate who won or who didn't. Um, so, yeah, I can't really give you too much there, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right, mate. That's all right. I mean, I, interesting that Pear thought it was fight of the night. I thought it was one of the fights of the night. For me, it wasn't the fight of the night. I, I, I found it fascinating in that it was, it, was, uh, it was an interesting clash of styles. James was fighting off the back foot a lot, being very mobile. I tweeted, tweeted quite early on in the fight saying, James needs to keep this movement up. Because if he stands still in front of Marshman, he'll get slept. And credit to the Canadian, he kept that movement throughout all three rounds, which it doesn't, it doesn't show as it being anything particularly spectacular, but it really is testament to the guy's conditioning. Because to be able to do that, fighting off the back foot, keeping his concentration while still scoring, um, and remembering you know, to, to just keep moving, lateral movement, and not being consistent with it, you know, moving sort of changing, changing sides and just presenting a constantly moving, unpredictable target. That, for me, was, was, was very impressive to see. But it was Marshman's aggression that really did get him the fight in the end. And uh, a good win for the hammer, Jack Marshman, who 
he's never in a boring fight, and he always comes out of it looking like he's he's uh, he's been massively beat up. He's got one of those one of those faces that just puffs up really easy. He's he's got he, he's always got a, a, an eye sort of swollen up every fight, every single time without fail. Jack Marshman comes in looking like he's been beaten up by about three people. But normally, he wins his fights. He's an exciting guy to watch. Someone else who I think we need to be keeping an eye on, Sandu, and if you blinked uh, towards the end of this fight, you definitely would have missed what happened. Khalil Roundtree versus Paul Craig. These two had some sort of simmering simmering rivalry going on. Um, and uh, Roundtree was just staring a hole through Paul Craig all the way through the introductions to their light heavyweight fight. And to be honest, the majority of the fight was pretty nondescript. Not that much happened. They were both standing off each other. Uh, Craig looked very nervous. Um, and uh, he threw out a few leg kicks, but really wasn't in range to score with them. And Roundtree was just waiting his moment, waiting his moment. And then when he timed his moment, he got it spot on. Big shots, dropped Paul Craig, and then some absolutely vicious ground and pound finished it at the 4.56 mark at the end of round one. Now, we know Paul Craig. He's a great character, great bloke to talk to. Uh, he's, a, he's a teacher by trade, and uh, he's gone into the UFC. He's become a little bit of a cult a cult favourite. I know I know the media guys love him, but uh, Roundtree, who had a bit, of a, a bit of a rocky start to his career in the UFC, is beginning to turn himself into a dangerous-looking prospect, Sandy. Did you catch any of this one? Well, you said, Simon, if you blink, you'll miss it. Uh, you you or blinked. If, or, or if you're backstage and conducting a post-fight media scrum with Danny Hot Chocolate Roberts, you'll also miss it. Uh, <laughs> so this is another one that I unfortunately... See, people think, Simon, that we, you know, we've got the best jobs in the world, and we do to a certain extent. But um, if you think that it's all just about you know, getting to see all the fights and you know, eating some popcorn and chilling out on a fight night, it's far from it. No, um, no. So I actually didn't catch this fight whatsoever. I actually ended up seeing the knockout on uh, the UFC Europe uh, social media feed on Twitter. So I did see the, the, the finish. And, I mean, all I can say is, yeah, I mean, Khalil Rantry told us in the post-fight media scrum that he's not here for a long time. He wants to try and get up the ranks as soon as possible, which is very possible in that light heavyweight division at the moment. Um, so he's, he's making a bit of noise now and trying to get another fight in as, in as soon as possible. Well, Paul Craig, Simon, now this is a, a bit of a strange one now because his UFC career isn't getting off to the best start, is it? Uh, and he's gone all in on this. He's, he's kind of quit his job as a teacher. Um, he, he's told us that he's now going to be training with the All-Star Gym in, in Stockholm, Sweden. You know, this is a massive financial commitment for him to do this. And um, you know what, Simon? He needs, to, he needs to get a win. He needs to get a win pretty bad uh, because, you know, just turning up to get the show money... Um, you know, at this level where, you know, considering what he'd probably be on, isn't going to cut it. Um, I thought he was fantastic uh, during uh, fight week with the media. Um, had the war paint going um, at, the, uh, at the ceremonial weigh-ins, which is always money, a great picture and a great moment. Um, but, you know, again, Simon, at this level in the UFC, um, there's a bunch of killers out there. And who knows if the moment and the occasion of fighting, um, you know, in Glasgow got to him. Um, and you mentioned that he was a little bit nervous or looked a little bit nervous uh, at the start of the fight. Um, and unfortunately, Paul Craig has now become officially in the record books the very first Scot uh, to lose at a UFC event in Glasgow. Um, it was a whitewash for them in 2015. Uh, earlier on this card, Danny Henry kept the streak alive 
Um, and of course, you know, Paul Craig became the first guy to lose. And, and overall, that main card with Paul losing and Stevie Ray losing and then Joanne Calderwood losing, you know, for all the support that they had um, from the fans, unfortunately, not one of them could give them a highlight moment to walk away with uh, come the end of the night. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those nights, you know, the first the first Glasgow show was uh, was, was, was just one of those where momentum just built as the night went on and the Scots really rose to the occasion. Wasn't to be on Sunday night at the Hydro. Uh, talking about highlights, the uh, the main card opener, Justin Willis versus James Mulheron. No highlights in that fight. Um, it was, <laughs> it was it, I mean, Justin Willis's nickname is Big Pretty. And while there were two big guys in there, it weren't pretty. It wasn't a good fight. Um, Justin Willis took the unanimous decision, 30-27 and all three scorecards. Uh, Mulheron, British heavyweight, making his debut. Um, very, I think he's going to struggle in the UFC. Um, largely down to size as much as anything. You know, he's he was conceding about 20 or 30 pounds to his opponent. He's quite short for a heavyweight and he's got a very short reach. None of that augurs well when you're stepping into the UFC heavyweight division. Um, there's also the fact that it was his debut as well. So uh, hopefully when he comes back next time round, we'll see a little bit more out of James Moheran. But that, that fight with Justin Willis, don't bother watching that one back on Fight Pass, Andrew. It wasn't up to much. But the preliminary card, the preliminary card was outstanding. We had some great, great matches. All four of the matches on the, uh, the televised prelims were absolute bangers. Danny Roberts against Bobby Nash. That was a really good, strong, competitive fight between two guys, striker versus wrestler. And uh, Bobby Nash had some had some early success with his wrestling. And in the second round, Danny Roberts came out and slept him. Absolute peach of a shot. Dropped Nash onto the seat of his pants. Head hit the canvas. Roberts went in with a follow-up shot. But I think Rich Mitchell, the ref, dived in and stopped it. I know Nash's corner said that the stoppage was early. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think Roberts would only have added another more shot. Uh, sorry, another another couple more shots, and the fight would have been over anyway. So, great performance from Danny Roberts. You and I were cage side for his previous outing at UFC 204 against Platinum Mike Perry, and uh, we were in in awe of both of those guys in that fight, just for the amount of punishment that they were able to dish out and take um, over, over a three-round fight. And uh, Roberts needed to take a lot of time out. I think he needed to have his eye socket reconstructed um, and uh, just needed a little bit of time to get everything back in order. And uh, he, came back, he came back in a big way. That was hugely impressive from, uh, from the man called Hot Chocolate. Yeah, we spoke about this, Simon, you know, um, we were both there, like you said, in Manchester, and I was really kind of anticipate, you know, looking forward to and anticipating Danny Roberts' return. And boy, what a comeback now. <laughs> Again, Simon, unfortunately, while this fight was going on, I was involved in yet another media scrum backstage, this time with Neil Tutapsiri, uh, and that was an important interview um, for all of us to conduct. Um, so I actually missed this fight, but I did see the finish on the UFC Europe social media feed. And, you know, to give some kind of insight, you know, all, all the post by interviews and scrums are all on the MMA Junkie YouTube channel for anyone that wants to check it out. But for this, for this fight, for Danny Roberts, it wasn't just about coming back off that loss uh, to, to Mike Perry and get, getting back in the win column. Um, he's had some personal troubles uh, in the last couple of months. He's kind of 
you know, broken up with his other half. Um, so that's obviously, you know, quite a stressful and emotional thing to go through. And, they, you know, there's kids involved and all sorts. So um, for him, just to kind of get a win in the UFC uh, to at least make sure his professional career is on the right track meant a lot to him. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he is part of the Brit pack, so to speak, Simon. So it's just great to see him um, smiling, happy, winning and uh, looking forward to seeing his return in the future. Yeah, he's one of those guys. He's he's very happy-go-lucky sort of character. But once he's in the cage, he's all business. And uh, I, I, for me, he's one of the most exciting British guys to watch right now. He's got he's got that that great blend of of slick striking skills. But his takedown defense isn't too bad, and he's got a little bit on the ground as well. I think he's an exciting guy. And the more he continues to work on his game and uh, gradually moves his way up those welterweight rankings. He asked to fight Alan Joban next, and I think that's a great call-out. I think, I think that's a really nice, uh, a nicely pitched uh, call-out. I think that's the sort of opponent who, will, if he can beat him moving forward without having to make sort of a huge quantum leap forward. So uh, looking forward to seeing the next step for Hot Chocolate Danny Roberts. You mentioned Neil Siri, Sandu. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about your conversation with him in a sec. He took on Alexandra Pantoja of uh, Brazil, who was already ranked in the, uh, the flyweight divisions. And uh, it, was, it was a thoroughly entertaining fight. For me, it was up there as a potential fight and a night contender. I thought it went really well. Uh, it looked really good on TV. Both men throwing heat throughout all three rounds. And then eventually in that third round, I think Pantoja... I thought, I thought the fight was even. I thought Pantoja won the first round. Uh, I thought Siri came back well in the second round and I thought began to impart his will a little bit on the Brazilian and really started to sort of plant his feet and, and, uh, and, and throw some real, you know, really strong stuff in that second round. And through sort of almost uh, force of will took that second round on my scorecard. Then it was down to what would happen in that third round and Pantoja wisely went to the uh, takedown got Siri on his back and eventually worked his way to a rear naked choke. Uh, it wasn't the way that Tutap wanted to go out. Obviously, it was, I think it was the 29th fight of his professional career. Wanted to go out with a win, but um, went out on his shield after another typically entertaining Neil Siri fight. Um, I think the decision to retire, given his age, is probably, probably a wise one. But I have to say, I'm going to miss chatting to him in fight week because he was always good value always joking around with his team. And uh, I'm going to miss watching him fight because just like Brad Pickett before him, um, he's another one of those guys who you see him on the fight card, you know you're going to get a good fight. Uh, and uh, while I think it's probably the right decision for him, it'll be a shame that we know now that we're not going to see another Neil Siri fight in the UFC. You spoke to him backstage, Sandu. What were his, what were his emotions like? He seemed to keep everything in check when he spoke to Dan Hardy. Uh, in the octagon how was he when you chatted to him backstage afterwards I'll get to that in a second Simon but um, I made a point and I spoke to Abby we were conducting uh, post-fight interviews backstage and then there was a bit of a gap and I was hoping there'd be enough of a gap um, in proceedings in the mix zone backstage for me to pop back cage side and watch this fight thankfully I got the opportunity to do that to see Neil Siri walk out for the final time and compete in the UFC octagon um, was something that I wanted to be there present for. So I did see the the, the fight in its entirety. And, um, you know, he got a great reception, Simon, from the Scottish fans. Um, uh, you know, 
I'm sure there were a lot of hardcore MMA fans that have seen his career. Maybe not from the beginning. Maybe not the you know. Maybe some had seen him in Cage Warriors, but even just his you know his UFC run uh, over the last couple of years. And you know he was part of that magic moment in Dublin back in the summer of 2014, which everybody remembers as one of the the most electric atmospheres you've, you'll ever see in any UFC event. Period. Um, and you know it was you know it was unfortunate that he couldn't you know finish his career on a win. We saw the same thing happen, Simon, in London. Um, you know, with, with, with you know Brad Pickett, these things happen. Um, you know, not everyone can go out on a high, so to speak. But you know, speaking to us backstage, he was kind of. There were kind of two takeaways that I had with the conversation, Simon. Number one, Neil Siri right now is a very scared man because he doesn't know what he's going to do next with his life now that his quite career is over. You know, and as the sport continues to grow. Um, Maybe the UFC can do something. I know some of the other professional sports leagues out there, like you know the Premier League and Champions League, uh, Champions League, but the other major you know football leagues in Europe and the NFL, NBA, NHL, stateside. You know, they have psychiatrists. They have um, you know uh, almost like you know uh, career specialists. Um, they have that will help um, these athletes transition into the next stage of their lives by speaking to them, figuring out what they want to do next. You know, because, you know, we're not fighter Simon, but we've been around enough of them to, to be able to say something like this. And when, you're, when you've been a fighter your entire life and all of a sudden it's over, it's so hard to let that let, let go because the adrenaline rush to walk out in packed, sold-out arenas is something that you'll never be able to replicate in any, any form or fashion or any walk of life ever again, you know. And all of a sudden, one day, it's all over. Um, and there's nothing that you can replace it with. So he's really scared in terms of what happens uh, in terms of his life next. And he was really kind of urging and hoping that the next generation of fighters, even the current generation of fighters, Simon, they start to become more smarter with the money that they do earn in the fight business and the fight game. He's, he, he, see, he sees too many fighters you know, squander their earnings on, on fancy cars and houses and this and that. And then they don't have much to show for it at the end of their fight career, apart from some, you know, busted noses and some scars on their bodies. So that's what he was kind of hoping to preach um, for the the next gen of fighters coming through. So those are the two main takeaways. Uh, and obviously, without you know, without a doubt, everyone uh, backstage, once the uh, the interview was over, made sure to to shake his hand and thank him for the career and for the moments they've given all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, he's one of those guys. And I think, it, I think it goes not just for fighters. I think it goes for a lot of professional sportsmen, whether they're, they're football players or, you know, cricketers or, you know, it could be anything. Once that, that competitive edge and, you know, the adrenaline rush is, is, is gone, it's very hard to replace it. Uh, but we wish Neil Siri well. We know he's, uh, he's got a family and uh, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll keep him busy for sure. But, uh, yeah. All the best to Neil Tutap Siri uh, in, his, in his retirement from the sport of mixed martial arts. Now, one person who it looks like we're going to be seeing a little bit more of is British welterweight Galore Buffando. He took on Charlie Ward, a uh, stable mate of uh, a certain Conor McGregor, uh, in a welterweight matchup. And I really didn't know what to expect from this. Charlie Ward got decimated on his UFC debut, knocked out very quickly in the first round. Haven't seen much of Galore Bufando. What I have seen has been pretty spectacular. 
but not anywhere near UFC level opposition. So it was a real sort of journey into the unknown. How would this fight go? And uh, Buffando looked the part. He put on a great display, showed some, some spectacular techniques. And then the knockout when it came was just plain bizarre. Charlie Ward had had enough of being, uh, having spinning stuff thrown at him, decided to close the distance and push Buffando up against the cage. Buffando managed to wriggle himself away from the cage and execute. It was almost like a hip throw. Uh, but he threw Ward, and, and Ward, it, it was basically Ward's tempo, I think, hit the mat first. And that was enough to knock him out. Um, and uh, Buffando sort of went in with, a, with another strike to completely put the cap on it. Referee jumped in, fight over. One of the most bizarre knockouts I've seen in a long time, but Buffando looks like someone who, he's going to be a lot of fun to watch for as long as he's in the UFC, Sandu. Yeah, so Buffando, for those that don't know, is, uh, is part of the London Shoot Fighters gym and the London Shoot Fighters camp. Uh, a good friend of one Michael Venom Page. And if anybody saw the ceremonial weigh-ins, you would have seen him do this kind of spectacular, I suppose, I don't know what to call it, Simon. He was kind of like kicking uh, away on the spot by, and also kind of hopping on the other leg as kind of made his way forward to the scales and to pose in front of the fans here in, in Glasgow. Um, but yeah, it was just a bizarre and spectacular and weird knockout. I've never seen anybody knocked out, from my recollection anyway, by just being thrown to the canvas like that. And um, yeah, I mean, what can you say? I mean, when we were speaking to him, he kind of mentioned that he was close to quitting. He was literally eating some cheesecake one day. And all of a sudden, he got the call right, you're going to get a shot in the UFC. We've got X number of weeks to kind of get you prepared. And he kind of just thought, right, I better get in the, in the gym and get, get down to business here. And now he's got the opportunity. He's won. He kind of just reflected and, and said, look, he's, something in the universe told him that God's given him these arms and these legs and he's wasting them. Um, and now he's got this kind of motivation to really you know, utilize them to the best of his ability. And uh, so I think we're going to see more of him uh, in the UFC. And he looks like a frightening, frightening character in the cage. So I'm actually really looking forward to seeing him back in the cage sooner rather than later. And he wants to fight Artem Lobov at lightweight. I like the sound of this. Artem Lobov obviously fights at featherweight. He'd probably be happy enough to fight at, at lightweight. He'll fight at any weight, Artem. And he doesn't turn down callouts either. He'll fight anyone. And... Uh, Buffando thinks he could get down to 155. Buffando versus Artem would be a fun fight to put on a European fight card. Maybe one later this year. Who knows? But that, to me, that sounds like money to me. What do you reckon? You know what? Someone mentioned this on Twitter. I can't remember who it was. I think Artem Lobov's become the new Michael Bisping side. He really he has. Is, <laughs> he's getting called out left, right, and center. Who would have thunk it? You know, Artem Lobov... Um, <laughs> He, he's just a man in demand. So he's in a good spot because I think a lot of people and a lot of guys want to fight him. He obviously wants to continue to fight in the UFC. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, if we can get Bando and Artem Lobov, sweet. I am game for that. I think if we can get anyone an Artem Lobov, I'll be game because Artem is a character and he brings it. Um, you know, he went the distance with Cub Swanson, which tells you everything that you need to know about him there. So, um yeah, let's do it. Why not? This is assuming that Artem isn't fighting one of Mayweather's bodyguards first. Um, there seem to be. Oh, some... somebody said Simon. Go on. Somebody, somebody said. Um, I think Artem Lobov might already be. 
he might be in the co-main event on the main, main mat card uh, by fighting uh, or boxing with uh, Manny Pacquiao. Behave yourself. <laughs> Behave yourself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Galore Bufando, spectacular stuff from him. Looking forward to seeing uh, who he fights next, whether it be um, Artem Lobov or someone else remains to be seen. Someone else who uh, made a pretty impressive uh, showing on his UFC debut was Scotland's own Danny Henry, the lone Scottish winner on UFC Fight Night 113. He took on Daniel Tamer, who we've heard a lot about, Sandu, brother of David Tamer, and we'd been told, if you think David Tamer's a crazy man, wait till you see Daniel Tamer. And he delivered as advertised. He came in uh, throwing absolute haymakers from the get-go. When he had Danny Henry in a lot of trouble in the opening round of their, of their lightweight contest. Now, both of these guys normally compete at featherweight. And at lightweight, I think that really did give the advantage to Danny Henry, who was a much, much bigger guy. Um, and uh, I think as the fight began to wear on, that size advantage, plus the fact that Tamer had never been out of the first round in his entire career, started to turn the fight in the Scots' favour. And he gradually worked his way back into it. And by the end of it, the crowd were on their feet, making a deafening din as Henry took it down the stretch and uh, came very close to beating Taylor inside, uh, Tamer inside the distance. He had one opportunity where it looked to me, if he carried on uh, throwing strikes, he would have finished him. But instead, he went to take him to the mat, which, if anything, extended the fight a little bit. But uh, Danny Henry got the unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28 and 29-26 on one of those scorecards. Great performance from Danny Henry. How happy was he when you got to him backstage? Well, this is an interesting one because I saw the first round, Simon, and I thought, right, like you said just now, Si, Daniel Taymor, as advertised, he's bringing it. He's bringing it big time. I saw the first round, and then we had to go and start the post-fight scrum with Brett Johns. So I thought, right, if Daniel Tamor continues that for at least one more round, that's, he, that's him getting the win in the bag. So to then find out later on that I was like, wow, I was really surprised and shocked considering how that first round went. But, um, you know, credit to Daniel Tamor. I've seen actually some posts on social media, on Facebook and Instagram by his manager, his coach, and even his brother. Um, Daniel Tamor today is in a cast because he's got a broken hand. Uh, and he says that he's broke, he broke that hand in the first round, which kind of now kind of lets you look at the fight perhaps in a bit of a different way, considering how he was not able to kind of go gung-ho like he did in that first round in rounds two and three. But all credit to Danny Henry, took the fight on short notice, Simon. Only had about three weeks and, uh, uh, to prepare himself, got the call last minute, and was the only Scott to win on the card. Spoke to us backstage. Uh, the guy still has a full-time job as a security guard. Uh, this was a dream come true for him. And um, he's just over the moon and ecstatic to have been able to perform in Glasgow in front of his home fans to fight for the UFC. You know, it's been a long time coming. He's he recently fought for the EFC. So, yeah, you know, this is what... Fight, you know, fighters are itching and scratching to get to the UFC. And when you get these short notice, you know, calls to, to jump in, you know, how many fighters, Simon, do you think would have been you know, eager to get in there with Daniel Tamor, who's got about, what, something between 30 and 40 pro kickboxing um, fights under his belt. Uh, I think with about 28 or so knockouts. 
I mean, you know, with a full camp. Um, so credit to Danny Henry for stepping up and getting it and getting the job done. Actually, um, this fight was the fire of the night and uh, got himself a, a nice 50k uh, fire of the night. So, so good for him. Yeah, absolutely. And Danny Henry, he won the featherweight title down there in South Africa with the EFC before getting the call to uh, to step in and take on Daniel Tamer uh, here at UFC Fight Night Glasgow. Great performance from Danny Henry. Looking forward to seeing where he goes in his UFC career. Two more fights on the card. Brett Johns versus Albert Morales. I love this fight. For me, this was a sleeper for fight of the night, but uh, Henry versus Tamer just shaded it. Johns, I thought, was outstanding. He, he really is looking the real deal at bantamweight. He's got decent boxing. He's got good fight IQ. And his, his top pressure, once he's got you on the mat, is as good as they get at 135 pounds, in my opinion. He looks, he looks like he could become a contender. He, if he starts to move up the ladder and start picking up more wins, I think he's undefeated on, I think it's 14-0 or 15-0 now. 14-0 he is, and uh, that was a hugely impressive performance. Bear in mind, Sandu, the only other guy to beat Albert Morales was a certain Brazilian by the name of Thomas Almeida. So he's in good company, Brett Johns. He's one of only two guys to beat Albert Morales. And uh, for me, that was one of the performances of the night. I know he didn't get a bonus uh, officially. I wonder if he got a locker room bonus. He looked really fired up as he came out. He's absolutely screaming at the camera as he was making his way down to the cage uh, before he, uh, you know, before he got in there and uh, threw down with Morales. Great, he's a great character as well, and uh, he looks like a serious, serious threat at 135, Sandy. Yeah, he does. Um, you know, look undefeated, off to a great start in the UFC. Um, I. Get him, get him, get him going. Let's get him a, a top fifteen ranked. Let's see how far, you know, or maybe even a top ten ranked opponent. Let's see, you know, what he's made of, you know, how far he wants to go. Speaking to him backstage, he's really eager. Now he's fought a couple of times in the UK for the UFC. He really wants to fight a big car in New York or perhaps in Vegas. And actually, speaking of Vegas, he was speaking very highly of the uh, of the Performance Institute. And, and said that one of the reasons he wants to fight in Vegas is so that he can perhaps get out there maybe three or four weeks um, out and actually make use of that performance institute. And for those that don't know, you know, if you're a UFC fighter, access to this amazing state-of-the-art facility 24-7, plus uh, the UFC, they comp you a free breakfast meal and um, a free lunch. So all you have to do is take care of your, your dinner and, you know, boarding. Uh, and for fighters that perhaps are, um, you know, starting to make their way up the, the pay scale, um, that perhaps, you know, don't have the best facilities in certain parts of the world, uh, but, but fight for the UFC, this is an amazing, amazing opportunity. Plus, it allows you to be, you know, in front of UFC personnel, back office staff, uh, President Dana White, Ari Emanuel, all these folks who are essentially responsible for trying to make stars out of, uh, out of these guys. So to, to kind of build a rapport there, to, to build relationships, to have that you know, regular contact with these folks, that doesn't hurt either. So I'm really kind of interested to see what happens next for Brett Johns. Of course, he'd love to see an event take place uh, in Wales. He, perhaps, he told us that he, he doesn't think that is the right size 
um, venue um, that's got a, a roof over um, that can ho host a, a one of these, you know, European flight night events. So he's now looking to jump across the pond and get onto a, a big card. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he won that one pretty decisively. 30-27, 30-27, and one card even giving him 30-25. A big, big win for Brett Johns. And it's, it's, it's almost easy to, to have forgotten how good the very first fight of the night was. Leslie Smith against Amanda Lemos was an absolute war. And both of these ladies absolutely threw down thoroughly entertaining scrap. Leslie Smith eventually getting the TKO with a, with a vicious flurry of uh, elbows and punches midway through that second round. But what a way to kick off the fight night. And uh, even a little call out for an MMA fighters union in her post-fight speech. Leslie the Peacemaker Smith. Uh, that, that, that was seriously impressive and the perfect, the perfect way to kick off fight night over there in Glasgow, Sandu. Simon, you know what? This was actually my fight of the night. Now, bearing in mind, you've, you've obviously heard me say I've missed a few fights now. From all the fights that I did see, this was my favorite fight of the night. Um, you know, Amanda Lemos, so technical, was teeing off on Leslie Smith in that first round. Done, done really well. And then Leslie Smith came back hard in that second round. It was a, a firefight. It, both ladies were absolutely game, throwing leather. It was such an entertaining fight. And when Leslie Smith won, obviously called out Betch great move. That's oh, yeah. a great fight. That's a great fight for her. And she kind of mentioned that, you know, in the UFC's, you know, bantamweight division, you know, all it takes is around, what, four wins to get yourself a title shot? And um, she's now looking for number three, and hopefully that will be Becca Heia. Um, after the fight, it was a great moment. I posted it on social media. Anyone wants to check it out, it's on my Twitter feed. And um, Leslie Smith came out of the octagon and then made a beeline for a bunch of fans that were supporting and cheering her on. And it was a great moment where she embraced them and um, you know, gave a few high fives. Considering the fact, Simon, she had to be transported to the hospital right after because her leg was absolutely destroyed. Her lead left leg was chopped left, right, and center by Amanda Lemos in that first round and an early pass that second round as well. So, yeah, I've got, got nothing but uh, praise and a great thing to say about Leslie Smith. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that the UFC can put this Betchka hair fight together because I think that'll be fireworks. It was such a common sense call out and the way she actually set it up as well. You know, she, she, she really did state her case, she did it really clearly. You came away going, Yes, they have to make that fight. And it makes complete sense. Make the fight. It, you know, it makes total, total sense. And uh, Leslie Smith always brings the action uh, in the UFC. Let's not forget, she stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Chris Cyborg and had no qualms in doing so, where many people uh, would not even, not even step through the cage door to face her. So all props to Leslie Smith. Great performance to kick off UFC Fight Night in Glasgow. You mentioned the official fight of the night was Danny Henry versus Daniel Tamer, 50k each, nicely done. Performance of the night bonuses went quite understandably to Santiago Ponzinibbio for that stunning first round knockout of Gunnar Nelson. And also thoroughly deserved Paul Felder. Uh, and uh, given what he's had to go through over the last, the last couple of months, uh, that's, a nice little, that's a, nice little, uh, a nice little present for Felder and his family. As, uh, as, as they look to come out the other side after a very, very difficult period for the Felder family. All the best to them. That was UFC Fight Night.
Nelson versus Ponzinibbio. But the heats just keep on coming, Sandu. This weekend, UFC on Fox, Weidman versus Gastelum at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. And Chris Weidman and Kelvin Gastelum at middleweight in the main event. Dennis Bermudez, Darren Elkins, after Elkins' incredible win uh, in his last outing. They're the co-main. Patrick Cummins, John Vellante, Jimmy Rivera against Thomas Almeida. That will be fire. So many interesting matchups on this card. It's going to be, it's going to be more must-see TV. It's not pay-per-view level, but it's going to be fun, Sandu. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's kind of weird timing because like normally we'll, we'll we'll end these shows by kind of previewing uh, the following week's event, and I just haven't had a chance to decompress yet. I haven't had a chance to decompress from this spectacular, you know, Mayweather McGregor international press tour that we were having to absorb last week. I haven't had a chance to decompress from UFC Fight Night Glasgow, which I'm just hours away uh, removed from that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at it on paper, Simon. These are some amazing fights. There's some important fights. It's on Big Fox in America, so you know you're going to have a lot of eyeballs on it. And just a quick one on the top of the card. This is such an important fight for Chris Weidman. He needs a win. He needs a win so, so bad. It's not been going in his favor as of late. And he's still got himself here in a, in a main event slot. Obviously, it's in, North, in Long Island. But he's coming off three back-to-back losses. Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, and recent Bellator signee, Gegard Mousasi. Yeah. So, let's see, let's see what happens. But, yeah, I mean, just, you know, just, just looking at it now. This is this is this could uh, this could be the second most important of the second most important fight of Chris Weidman's career outside of that first title fight with, uh, with Anderson Silva. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you take a look at the form of the guys fighting as well, officially, Kelvin Gastelum uh, has won two out of his last three. But in terms of action in the cage, he's won three out of his last three. His last fight was uh, a dominant TKO win over Vitor Belfort. That fight result got overturned after Gaslam tested positive for marijuana. So he's lost out that on, on that win on a technicality as far as I'm concerned. In the cage, no performance enhancers. He smashed Vitor Belfort. He also smashed Tim Kennedy. And he also ragdolled Johnny Hendricks. So, you know, this for me is is um this is a man on a on a on a real charge and a guy who I think could really become in 2018 a serious threat to the UFC's 185-pound title. I really do. I know he's short for the weight, but he's at his best weight class when he's fighting at 185. I've never seen him better than when he fought Tim Kennedy. And if he gets past Chris Weidman, then you really have got to start thinking about him as a, as a, as a legit top contender. And as you say, Weidman... It, it's almost win or go home time for Chris Weidman. It's, he's been operating at this elite level and uh, all of a sudden the wheels have started to fall off. The pressure is really on and he's fighting on home soil as well. This is a big, big, big fight for Chris Weidman. But the fight for me, aside from that main event, is, is the main card opener. Jimmy Rivera versus Thomas Almeida is made for network television. That fight is going to be an absolute <laughs> banger. Rivera, heavy-handed, great wrestling, loves to stand and trade. Thomas Almeida is a psychopath with four-ounce gloves on. So, 
that is going to be a superb matchup. And uh, I, for one, can't wait to see it. How do you see that one going, Sandu? Is it going to be Rivera or is Almeida going to bring the violence and hand Rivera oh, his first loss Jesus. In, in almost forever? Jesus Christ, Simon. That is flip a freaking coin. Really do. I mean, seriously, that is a flip a coin if you ever see one because both are capable of winning. Both fighters only have one loss on their records. Oh, God. If you ask me to pick right now, I can't do it. I need, I need to decompress, Simon. <laughs> I need to decompress. I can't, I can't take, on, take on any more kind of fights right now and process them and kind of really think about them analytically. But yeah, you're right. On paper, that should be a smashing fight and it could easily be the fight of the night. Absolutely. For the record, and I'm, I'm putting it out there now, Jimmy Rivera wins this. He's on a 19-fight win streak. I think he's got the all-round game to deal with Thomas Almeida. What that means, of course, is that you should go down to bookmakers and put your mortgage on Thomas Almeida to win. So, because my, I've been doing terribly with fight picks. I have been doing absolutely terribly with fight picks. That, I think, is probably enough for this week. We'll wrap things up. Sandu is racking up the, uh, the Wi-Fi charges up there in Glasgow Airport. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put a lid on it for this week. We hope to have some news for you in the coming weeks about a few little changes we're going to make to the Brit Pack. Uh, as we look to uh, take things up a notch in the coming weeks and months. We're rapidly approaching show number 50. And uh, the plan is, once we get past show number 50, to, uh, to really start kicking things up a gear. We really appreciate everybody listening. You can follow us on Twitter, at the Brit Pack MMA. We didn't do Q&A this week, but then, uh, send all your questions in. We will do questions on next week's show. Tweet them to us at the Brit Pack MMA. You can get in touch with Sandu during the week at Sandu MMA. You can get in touch with me at Simon Head. Check out the Brit Pack website while you're online, thebritpackmma.com. You'll find all of our back issues, all of our past shows, and the occasional blog as well. You can get us on Acast, on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, and on Stitcher. That was the Brit Pack episode number 47. Hope you enjoyed that one. We'll be back to relive the action from the Nassau Coliseum as Wyvern takes on Gasolin. But until then, enjoy the fights and we'll speak to you next week.